together. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have provided us with your word whereby we can see you correctly. And Lord, in the power of your spirit, you enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, as we examine this passage of scripture together this morning, I pray that you would quicken our hearts by your spirit. Lord, that you will help us to see what we need to see. Lord, that we wouldn't look at this as some event that happened 2,000 years ago and only that, but Lord, an event that shows us who you are, an event that shows us who we are. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us in these events to see where they apply to us. And Lord, that where we need to, that we would repent. Lord, where we, where we need to, help us to be encouraged. Help us to be uplifted. Lord, help us to be changed into the image of your Son. Through your word and the power of your Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we um, get into this text, we need to talk about a technical and controversial issue. And some people here might be upset, some people might be confused, and some might be troubled. But don't worry, it is going to work out in the end. Now you may have never noticed, but your Bible probably has a parenthesis or a line separating uh, John 7:53 to 8 chapter 11 from the rest of the text. Have you ever wondered why? Well, if you look at the footnotes, most of them will say something like the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53 to 8:11. Now maybe you're shocked by this. Maybe you've never seen it before. What's happening here is is most of the modern Bibles are asserting that this passage should not actually be in the Bible. Now, this might be kind of a thunderbolt to you. Does that mean that there are errors in the Bible? In a word, no. There are no errors in the Bible. The New Testament was written originally in Koine Greek by the God-inspired authors who wrote it down perfectly. And all of these manuscripts of the New Testament were completed before the end of the first century. But the problem is we don't have any of these original manuscripts of the Bible. What we do have are copies. There are 5,686 copies of these Greek manuscripts available today. And the earliest known manuscript is known as Ryland's Library Papyrus 52. It is a fragment of the Gospel according to John that dates back to 125 AD, around 29 years from the date in which John wrote. Now many more of these documents, many more of these manuscripts come from around the year 200 AD. 
but during, during the copying and translation process, errors crept in. Remember, they didn't have printing presses and photocopiers and scanners back then. So our Bibles are based on copies. So once again, we do not have a perfect English Bible. It is the original Greek and the old, case of the Old Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts that are inerrant. But we really need not be concerned because these early manuscripts are considered to be 99.5% accurate, and where there are differences, they do not call into question any major doctrine. The first complete Greek New Testament was published by the Roman Catholic humanist Erasmus in 1516, and he used six Greek manuscripts, which included most of the New Testament, but there were gaps. And where there were gaps, he went back to the Latin Vulgate, which is the Bible used by Roman Catholics. William Tyndale used the same manuscripts as Erasmus to publish the first English New Testament in 1526. And Tyndale was subsequently burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for his efforts. Now, now this is, if, if you look at our, at our King James, the one that, that Laurie read from this morning, and compare it with the modern Bibles, you're going to see that there are differences. The King James actually doesn't include those lines, the, the gaps. It includes it as part of the rest of the text. But again, even though there's some differences like the one we see this morning, we need to remember that the, these translations agree more than 99% of the time. It's because they go back to the, original, the early manuscripts in the, in the original languages and translate word for word. So Bibles like the, the ESV and the NASB and the NIV do this. Now there are, some of these are better than others. The ones that, that, that stick more closely to the original are, are better. And the ESV is, is actually better than the NIV in that sense. But there is also paraphrases out there, and there we have examples like the Message or the Living Bible or the Good News Bible. Now they they don't go back to the original languages, the original manus the early manuscripts. They go back to the just to, to try to get a general meaning of the text. And I can't say this strongly enough. These should never be relied upon for our main Bible study because they regularly get it wrong and they regularly water down the actual message of the text. So when we, we look at passages like what we have before us this morning and we see that there's differences, what do we do? How do we figure out what should be in there? Scholars compare early manuscripts and note the differences. The problem is, it, the problem is most of us don't know Koine Greek, nor do we have easy access to these early manuscripts. But we need to be careful. We shouldn't rely ultimately on the opinion of scholars and their opinions regarding various manuscripts because this would mean having to go to a source outside the Bible for our authority. They're external evidence and, and can't be relied upon. Now, if you, if you do a search on sermons on this passage, you'll find a, a huge range of perspectives regarding whether it should be there, whether it shouldn't be there, whether you should preach it, whether you shouldn't preach it. So there's individuals like, like John MacArthur believes it should be there and preaches the text. 
R.C. Sproul also preaches the text. John Piper believes it shouldn't be there, but that it actually happened, so he preaches the text. D.A. Carson believes it shouldn't be there, but he also preaches the text. But we can't rely on any of these men. Again, they are external testimonies. We need to rely on internal evidence. And when it comes to John 7:53 to 8:11, there is some evidence that points to it not being there. First of all, there is no known manuscript that includes the passage from before the 5th century. Early collections like the Codex Sinaiticus do not include it. However, just because no early manuscript has been discovered does not mean that one doesn't exist. Secondly, Early church fathers do not quote it. Men like Tertullian and Origen don't even mention it. Although compelling, again, this evidence is external and strictly circumstantial of the type that would never hold up in a court of law. Now, interestingly, Papias, who was personally discipled by John, mentions the event. So there is strong evidence that it actually did happen. And Augustine, a little bit later on, stated that the section had been removed so as to remove any excuse that women would have for committing adultery. But again, this is external. We can't rely on these things. The only piece of internal evidence that, is, that some argue that is that the language that's in this passage does not sound like the language that is used by John in the rest of, of this gospel account and in John's epistles. But once again, this is subjective and also circumstantial. So what do we do? We rely on the Word of God as our authority. The Word of God is inerrant, inspired, and sufficient. So what do we do? Is the text there or is it not there? Well, in answer to that and instead of that question, I would, I would recommend in your own study that you don't rely on just one Bible. That you actually look at a range of good translations and compare and contrast them and look for differences. And sometimes when the differences are there, they'll actually highlight a point that you need to take note of. There's lots of online software out there that can help you in this study. You can actually look at, at verse by verse and just compare them right next to each other. And you'll find that generally the differences between them are really quite minor. But when there is a difference, like in our passage this morning, the first thing you need to do is ask whether it contradicts or confirms other Bible teaching. Then you need to ask whether it fits the context of the verses around it. So here we're, we're applying the rule of faith. The Westminster Confession states it thus, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore when there's a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak most clearly. Now, this is a, this is an, uh, a wider application of the rule of faith, but it still applies. So then, does John 7, 53 to 8, 11, 11 contradict biblical doctrine? Does it fit the context of the verses around it? Well, in answer to the first 
question. John 7:53 to 8:11 does not contradict any biblical doctrine. On the contrary, it confirms biblical doctrine. It shows how the Pharisees questioned and challenged Jesus' authority. It shows how they misinterpreted and misapplied Mosaic law. It reaffirms Jesus' authority to interpret and apply law and even to forgive sins. It highlights the grace and mercy of God, as well as the call to repentance. Now, in answer to the second question, it also fits the immediate context. First of all, we, we talked about this last week. At the beginning of, of chapter of chapter 8 12 would not make sense. Before we get into, into John 7, at the beginning of 8, if you were to jump straight from John 7 52 to 8 12, it would not make sense. You jump from, from it saying, Are you from Galilee also? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then suddenly, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. This, this doesn't fit. It doesn't run smoothly from that one passage to the next. But I believe even more compelling is the fact that it fits the immediate context of what has just happened and what is about to happen. Nicodemus has just challenged the other Pharisees over their misapplication of the law by failing to follow due process in their condemnation of the crowds. It fits neatly into what John is highlighting about the rejection of Jesus because of false judgment. Therefore, although we cannot know conclusively, I am of the opinion that this passage should indeed be in our Bibles. So with that, with John chapter 8, John is introducing a new facet of a subject that he's already been highlighting, that of correct judgment. And as such, it's really part of the theme of the rejection of Jesus and the division that we've been seeing since John chapter 5 that comes as a result of wrong judgment by the crowds and wrong judgment by the religious authorities. Now, John highlighted this theme of correct judgment when he quoted Jesus in John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And then we see it there again at the end of, of chapter 7. The Pharisees condemned the crowd for their approval of Jesus, saying in verses 48 and 49, Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now, their statement is flawed in two ways. First of all, one of the Pharisees did seem to believe in Jesus, or at least approve of him like many of the crowds. It was Nicodemus who had come to Jesus in John chapter 3, and he spoke up against their condemnation, saying in verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he, said, what he does? And he's also demonstrating how they're wrong in a second way. They were wrong by accusing the crowds by pronouncing them accursed. Without any formal proceedings, they were, they were just casting a blanket statement over this crowd saying they're accursed. And this is the same thing that they're doing to Jesus. They called him a deceiver in John 7.47. They sought his arrest in John 7.32. And they wanted to kill him in John 5.18. 
So Nicodemus here is appealing to the very law that the Pharisees apparently knew so well to show them that their judgment is faulty. They're showing partiality. He's probably appealing to, or probably thinking of Deuteronomy 1.17. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Then in verse 52, we see another way that the Pharisees are wrong. We talked about this last week. They were wrong in their assertion that no prophet comes from Galilee. Prophets did come from Galilee. I mentioned Jonah and Elijah. 2 Kings 14.25 says that Elijah, we see in 2 Kings 14.25 that, that, that Jonah was from Gath-Hefer, which was in Galilee. And I mentioned last week that Elijah was also possibly from Galilee. 1 Kings 17.24 says that Elijah was from Tishbe and Gilead. Now I said then that, that Gilead was in Galilee. It's actually, Gilead is actually east of the Jordan River, but Tishbe was likely in northern Galilee, the same region as Mount Carmel, the same place where Elijah had his, his showdown with the prophets of Baal. So Elijah was also probably from Galilee, and I want to add two more to the list. Hosea and Nahum were also possibly from Galilee. Some believe that Capernaum actually refers to the village of Nahum, Capernaum. So once again, the Pharisees were showing wrong judgment, even as they claimed to appeal to the Scriptures. All of this takes place at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, the day before the events that we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to see this morning how the Pharisees are going to demonstrate once again that their judgment is faulty, that they're not judging with righteous judgment. They're judging by outward appearances. This event proves that they're not submitted to God's will or God's word, so they don't recognize who Jesus is. Remember, the only ones who really know Jesus who Jesus really is, are those who are submitted to God's will. And the only ones who are submitted to God's will are those who are submitted to God's word. And the Pharisees were submitted to neither. So let's look at Jesus' interactions in John 7, 53 to 8, 11, and submit to God's word so that we can submit to God's will and find out more about who Jesus is. And also, in so doing, find out more about who we are. So we're briefly going to look at Jesus' interaction with the crowds, and then we're going to look at his interaction with the religious authorities, and then we'll finish with a, with a glimpse of his interaction with the adulterous woman. So first of all, Jesus and the crowds. In John 7:53, after the meeting of the Sanhedrin, they all went home. But in 8.1, we find that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This was a favorite location for Jesus and the disciples. And then early the next day, Jesus came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Jesus would do this again during the last week of his earthly ministry as well. He would retire to the Mount of Olives in the evening, and then come back early in the morning to the temple and teach. Jesus knew that he had limited time during his earthly ministry to reach out to these people, so he made the most of every opportunity. Now, what exactly Jesus was teaching at this point, we don't know. And we also don't know the eternal destination of the crowds who are listening to him. 
But here we have these supposedly accursed crowds, at this point anyway, eagerly listening to the teaching of Jesus. But then suddenly into their midst come the scribes and the Pharisees with this woman in tow. They're probably dragging her semi-clad behind them. And they plunk her down right there in the middle of the gathering. So here we have the same ones who are supposedly the teachers of the law, staging an attempted diversion to steer the crowds away from hearing the truth. They had accused the crowds of not knowing the law, and now they were preventing them from hearing it straight from God the Son. They wanted to discredit Jesus in front of the crowds and so reestablish their power and their authority. And I want to spend the bulk of the time this morning examining Jesus and his interaction between with Jesus and his interaction with the religious authorities. In verse 4, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now we're going to steer clear of any of the circumstances surrounding her arrest, but suffice, suffice it to say, they were making very serious allegations. They claimed that this woman had been caught red-handed in the middle of heinous sin. At this time, the Pharisees got it partially right. The law of Moses did prescribe the death penalty for adultery. And the customary mode of execution was stoning. But if you've got your antennae up, you'll see that something is already amiss. Where's the man? He was guilty of the same sin and deserved the same penalty. Leviticus 20.10 if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. At Deuteronomy 22:22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now there are still Muslim countries today where women who are accused of adultery are stoned to death. However, it does not seem to have been common practice at the time of Christ. But we'll see the Pharisees aren't really interested in the case. They're not really interested in what the woman did or what the correct punishment should be. They are interested in entrapping Jesus. So they continue in verse 5. What do you say? Moses commanded death. What's your verdict, Jesus? Now, they called him teacher or rabbi in verse 4, but it's only mock respect. John reveals their hearts to us in verse 6. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Just imagine that for a second. These self-righteous Pharisees are trying to use the law of God to condemn God the Son, the eternal Word of God. I use the word audacity to speak of the Pharisees last week. If that was audacious, 
I don't know what words to use to describe this event today. They didn't care about the woman and her sin. She was merely a pawn in their scheme. They weren't looking for justice. They had no real concern for the law of Moses. They only wanted to entrap Jesus. They weren't interested in the glory of God. They wanted to discredit and tarnish the glory of God. If Jesus here denied the death penalty, he would be discredited as a lawbreaker. If he supported the death penalty, he would be supporting a position that wasn't commonly practiced, and it would undermine his message of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. It also would have drawn him into conflict with the Romans who had taken away the Jews' right to enforce the death penalty. We saw earlier when, when Laurie was reading at the end of the chapter, they're going to try to stone Jesus themselves. But if Jesus had gone along with them, it would have placed him in conflict with yet another principle of the law of Moses, one that likely would not have registered in the hard hearts of the Pharisees. Exodus 23.1 You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. These scribes and Pharisees were a hostile witness with malicious intent. Now, Jesus would deal with the woman in a moment, but he would not be trapped by the Pharisees and their ploy. So he didn't even answer them. He simply bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, some think that he wrote the names of the accusers and their sins. Others think he was merely scribbling in the sand. It's been commonly suggested that he was writing part of Jeremiah 17, 13. Those who turn away from you shall be written on the ground, for they have forsaken the water, the, sorry, the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now that would fit nicely with what we saw last week about the water-pouring ceremony that was part of the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's only speculation. We really don't know what Jesus wrote. But whatever he wrote, it didn't seem to have any impact on these men. They persisted with their questions. So now Jesus stood up, and he silenced all of them with his verdict. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This was clearly a reference to Deuteronomy 17.7. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now Jesus here was adding to the application of that principle to call the character of the witnesses into question. And after Jesus had pronounced this verdict, he simply knelt down again and began to write, on the ground. Now we know that Jesus is the ultimate defense lawyer as he intercedes for us before the throne of God. But here he is employing a tactic that is commonly used in courtrooms to this day. 
discredit the witnesses, and the case against the defendant crumbles. Hendrickson says he showed them that they were not fit to execute the very law which ostensibly they were so eager to carry out. Borchardt explains the, the standard Jesus demonstrated was that authentic accusers themselves, sorry, was that, that the standard Jesus demanded was that authentic accusers themselves not be subject to accusation. Now, of course, this does not mean that one must be perfect before approaching somebody about sin. If that were the case, no one would be able to say anything about any, about, no one would be able to say anything to anyone about sin ever. Because none of us are holy without sin. But again, from Borchardt, we must remember that the context here involved self-righteous men who were full of judgment and ready to destroy a woman for their own evil ends. Jesus saw through their pseudo-righteousness and judged it for what it was. Religious people are thus here fully forewarned of the temptation to self-righteous judgment of others. The point is that Jesus can accuse accusers. Paul's indictment in Romans 2.1 could easily be applied to them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, Judge not that you be not judged. For the judgment you with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. This is the principle of sowing and reaping. Sow judgment and you will reap judgment. God is the righteous judge. He will judge us with the same measure that we use against others. But we need to be very careful here to realize that Jesus is not condemning all judgment. He's condemning unrighteous judgment. He's condemning self-righteous judgment. Judgment is unrighteous when it comes from the wrong heart and uses the wrong measurement. These men were judging the women, that woman from a wrong heart. They were self-righteous. Although they claimed to be using the standard of the Mosaic law, they showed again and again that they didn't care a whit about the law of Moses. And Jesus proved that by challenging them about their sin. He knew all about the beams in their eyes that kept them from being able to deal with anybody else's sin. It's a principle here that, that we need to see for ourselves. Deal with our own sin first, and then we can see clearly to help others. Again, they didn't care about the woman. They didn't care about the righteousness and holiness of, of God. They cared even less about their own sin, rendering themselves unfit to judge. Brothers and sisters, we have to be vigilant, vigilant in our fight against sin. 
but we had better be most vigilant in the fight against our own sin. Paul admonished the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10.6, speaking of false teachers. Be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So it's from a heart that knows its own sinfulness. It's from a heart that knows its own unrighteousness. It's from a heart that knows that the only righteousness that it has is the righteousness that is given to us as a gift by God the Son. It is only the heart that, that strives to walk after God in obedience. It is only the heart that loves God and loves the person that you are addressing. It is only that heart. It is only that person that has a right to say anything to anyone about anything. Criticism can be all too easy to mete out. But what's really hard is to do it lovingly. If you're going to criticize somebody, first examine your own heart. Is this out of love? Are you seeking their best? Have you prayed for them? Are you doing it for God's glory and the good of the church? The Pharisees did none of these things. And we all act like them sometimes, don't we? We see somebody else sinning and we immediately condemn them. We are so quick to point out the faults in others while turning a blind eye to our own. Why? Why do we do this? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves and our own sin. We want to take the other person down a few pegs so we can be raised up in our own estimation. We tend to judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. We often assume the best of intentions when it comes to our own actions, but the worst when it comes to those of somebody else. We're quick to make excuses for our own sin, but we do not do so. We don't allow any excuse for anybody else. My friends, there is no excuse for sin. There's or ours. And again, we do need to deal with sin, but we need to deal with our own sin first and foremost. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees seemed to understand Jesus' point. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. The King James includes being convicted by their own conscience. The wind was taken out of their sails. They had nothing left to say. Had any of them dared to pick up a stone, he would have helped felt the hot gaze of the eyes of Jesus boring into his soul. One by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they all slunk away, leaving Jesus there alone with the woman. We're going to finish as we examine 
Jesus' interaction with this adulterous woman. Now Jesus stood up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She answered, No one, Lord. Their charges had been dropped. However, that did not mean that she could be pronounced not guilty. They still had the matter of her guilt. She was, after all, an adulteress. But notice that she didn't come back and say, but Jesus, they weren't very loving in what they said to me or what they did to me. But as far as her sin went, what the Pharisees did was irrelevant. Unless they came to faith in Jesus Christ, they would also come under the condemnation of God for their sin. But regardless of what they did or didn't do or said or didn't say, she was still guilty. Regardless of the heart of the Pharisees, this woman was guilty. Now friends, if somebody criticizes you, you need to receive it regardless of the spirit with with which it is given. If you understand the depths of your sin, you will realize that there is probably some truth to the allegation, even if it is not presented correctly. And if you understand the sinful nature of man, there will be an element of sin when somebody comes to you. All of our good deeds are as filthy rags. But what they said or didn't say or what they did or didn't do is irrelevant. We need to ask the question, is what this person saying to me true? Is it true? If you understand, if you're a Christian, if you understand that your identity is in Christ, you need not be offended. And if you're really not sure that that this is the reality, if you really haven't seen it, haven't seen it, then weigh up the matter in your heart. Pray about it. Seek counsel from those who you can trust to, to give you a biblical perspective. God may just be using that person to help you to grow to be more like Jesus. Jesus, after all, was judged unfairly but didn't revile back. But God just may be using that person to make you more like Jesus to be pointing out an area of sin even if they didn't do it correctly. So be thankful. So though none of this woman's accusers were there, both the woman and Jesus knew full well that she was guilty. But instead of taking up the offense, Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Can you imagine the relief that this woman felt? When just a couple of minutes earlier, she would have have seen that her life was hanging in the balance. 
that she very likely could have been stoned to death and gone to an eternity separated from God. But Jesus, at that last moment, rescues her from the claws of death. Beloved, if you are born again in Jesus Christ, you don't need to imagine what that woman felt like. Because you know that the wages of sin is death. Not the wages of other people's sin being death, but the wages of your sin being death. The wages of my sin is death. Imagine, remember what it's like when you first knew the forgiveness of God. I've shared my testimony with many here. When I finally knew the forgiveness of Christ, remember, I got saved in a psychiatric hospital. My brain was so fried that I could not string together three words to make a sentence. But when I cried out, Lord, the rest of this wreck of his life is yours. Just please forgive me. I found forgiveness. I knew the grace of God. And when a couple days later I was released from that hospital, I literally rolled around in the grass with joy. With joy. I felt like, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress when he went before the cross and the burden fell from his back and rolled into the tomb never to be seen again. Beloved, if you are in Christ, the burden has rolled off your back. The death penalty was meted out. The wages of sin was death, but not for you. The wages of your sin was death for God the Son. The sinless Son of God took the penalty for our sin. If you know that forgiveness, you will never take up a stone to stone somebody else. You will be so eager to deal with your own sin that when it comes to dealing with somebody else's sin, you will go to them lovingly, humbly, grateful for what God has done for you. And whenever we fail to do so, we are, we are failing to remember what Christ has done for us. Whenever I fail to do so, I'm failing to remember what Christ has done for me. Jesus is demonstrating to this woman his power to forgive sins. She deserved death. Jesus was offering her life. 
Jesus had declared his right to forgive sins quite clearly in Mark chapter 2 when he healed the man who was paralyzed. He said in verse 10, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And again, the scribes and the Pharisees knew the, the impact. They knew what he was really saying because they said only God has the power to forgive sins. And here was God doing just that. But Jesus continued, Go and sin no more. He'd given this command to another man who was paralyzed in John 5.14. See you are well. Sin no, more, more, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This woman wasn't free to continue committing adultery or any other sin. She was free to walk in righteousness. The bond of sin had been broken. And Jesus was charging her to live a lifestyle of repentance. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. If you are truly born again, those who are around you, especially those who are closest to you, will see you growing. They'll see you more and more living, not in the, the works of the flesh, but dis displaying the fruit of the Holy Spirit as you're progressively sanctified, as you are progress progressively transformed into the image of Jesus. So we go and sin no more. But we do so not in our own strength. Repentance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But for those who are genuinely converted, they will work out their salvation in fear and trembling, for God is at work in them to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So beloved, do you see a tendency to focus on the sin of others while ignoring your own? Do you realize that we all deserve the death penalty for our sin? How then could we ever self-righteously point the finger at someone else? Walk in a lifestyle of repentance by the grace of God so that you can be the instrument of God pointing people to Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God. Have you been forgiven by God, remember, remember that your forgiveness cost the death of Christ and go and sin no more. Let's pray.